This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Thanks for joining us again at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 14. We're going to be talking about an introduction to pre-existence within the Bible. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus Christ. Thanks again so much for joining us. My name is Dustin Smith. I am your host. When it comes to discussions and debates about Christology, which is the study of who Jesus is, one of the most important and most misunderstood battlegrounds deals with the nature of pre-existence. Today we are asking, what does the Bible say about pre-existence and in what manner does it use pre-existent language for Jesus Christ? Now we're not going to be concerning ourselves with how the various 4th and 5th century church councils spoke of pre-existence. Rather, today we're going to be focused on introducing how the Bible teaches this subject. And contrary to what most people might think, how the Bible teaches pre-existence is different than how the 4th and 5th century church councils described it. I also want to remind our listeners that biblical Unitarians strongly affirm the biblical teaching that Jesus was begotten in the womb of his mother Mary, meaning that he came into existence when he was born. So to begin, let's look at our first point, point number one. We're going to be defining pre-existence. I often get asked if I believe in the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. Now, instead of giving them an immediate answer, I always ask, what do you mean by the word pre-existence? I ask this question because not everybody even has the same definition for this term pre-existence. And what we're going to see and demonstrate is that pre-existence can be understood in a number of ways. In David Cape's article on pre-existence in the Dictionary of the Later New Testament and its Developments, he helpfully notes that, quote, the pre-existent state may be described as ideal, meaning existence in the mind or plan of God, or actual, meaning existence alongside and distinct from God, end quote. There David Cape says on page 956 that pre-existence needs to be defined in two different ways. Either it's ideal, meaning existence in God's mind and plan, or it's actual pre-existence alongside God. So this is why I asked that question to my debate partners. What do you mean by the word pre-existence? Because are we talking about pre-existence within God's purposes and mind and plan, or literal pre-existence physically and tangibly alongside God in heaven? We can also see from Robert Hamilton Kelly's work on his book, Preexistence, Wisdom, and the Son of Man, where he actually frames the debate in two similar fashions, quote, either in the mind of God or in heaven, end quote. And that's on page 21 of Hamilton Kelly's book. So what we're seeing there is that scholars are telling us that preexistence could be either in God's mind, plan, and purposes, or it could be literally preexistent alongside God in heaven. We can actually demonstrate this from a Jewish work called Genesis Rabbah that was written after the New Testament. This is what Genesis Rabbah chapter 1 and verse 4 says. Now this document is a description and an explanation of the book of Genesis. And so this is what this quote says. 
Six things preceded the creation of the world. Some of them were actually created, while the creation of others was already contemplated. The Torah and the throne of glory were created. The Torah, for it was written, The Lord made me in the beginning of his way prior to his works of old, in Proverbs 8.22. The throne of glory, as it is written, Thy throne is established of old, in Psalm 93 and verse 2. The creation of the patriarchs was contemplated. For it is written, I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first season, in Hosea 9 and verse 10. The creation of Israel was contemplated, as it is written, Remember thy congregation, which you have purchased from old, in Psalm 74 and verse 2. The creation of the temple was contemplated, for it is written, Your throne of glory on high from the beginning, the place of our sanctuary, in Jeremiah 17 and verse 12. The name of the Messiah was contemplated, for it is written, His name exists prior to the Son, in Psalm 72 and verse 17. End quote. That's a massive quote from this Jewish document called Genesis Rabbah, chapter 1 and verse 4, where it distinguishes preexistence in the two ways that we saw that modern scholars are distinguishing it. Genesis Rabbah says some of these things were actually created while others were contemplated. And we're seeing that there were human beings. We saw that the patriarchs, we saw that the entire nation of Israel and the name of the Messiah were all contemplated meaning they were thought out within God's foreknowledge and plans and purposes. And this Jewish document chose to regard the name of the Messiah as on the contemplated side of preexistence rather than something that was actually created. So when we are thinking and describing preexistence within the Bible, we need to ask this same question. Namely, are we talking about preexistence within God's mind, plan, and purposes? Or are we talking about literal preexistence actually alongside God in heaven? Now let's move to the Bible and let's look at our second point, which is how God's plans and purposes are described. Look at this excellent passage here in 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 25, where God says, Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass. What an interesting passage here with the parallelism where God says that long ago he actually did it and from ancient times he planned it. Notice how doing things and planning things can be said by God in parallelism as meaning the same thing. God can actually plan things and it can be spoken of as having already come to pass. And then the verse goes on and says that now in history, after the ancient times, God has brought it to pass. So they were seeing that God has plans and purposes, and those plans and purposes can be spoken of as things that God has already done. And this is not a typical way that we speak today in the 21st century, but it is important for us to understand that this is language that the Bible uses. We can also see a similar sort of language in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, which says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they were and they were created. That's very interesting there. God created all things because of his will, meaning his desire, his wish, 
Notice that they were, and then they were created. As in God's plans and purposes and his will can actually state that things already were, and then they were created. So it's, it's just very interesting that we're seeing that things can be spoken of as kind of already there within God's plans and his will and his purposes prior to them being created. This seems to be very clearly pre-existence within God's mind. Another passage we can look at is the pre-existence of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5 has God speaking and saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. That's Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, to where prior to Jeremiah even being born, God knew him, consecrated him, meaning that God set him apart and appointed him as a prophet to the nations. So God already had Jeremiah in his plans and purposes, and God decided before Jeremiah was even born that he had these plans to set him apart, to consecrate him as the spokesman to the nations. And we can also see that Christians were within God's foreknowledge. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and the first two verses where Peter just very casually starts off and says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. All of these Christians who resided in this area, this massive area, were elect with God and chosen with God according to his foreknowledge, according to his predetermined plan. So even Christians preexisted within God's mind and purposes. And of course, that passage in 1 Peter goes on to say that they were foreordained and foreknown in order to be sprinkled with Jesus' blood and to obey Jesus Christ. Very interesting there that we're seeing within the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament, that preexistence can be described of God's plans and of human beings, actually, within God's mind and purposes. Third point we're going to look at is that the Bible repeatedly states that Jesus Christ himself was in the plans and purposes of God. Three passages here that are extremely important that all of my listeners need to commit to memory or underline and highlight heavily within their Bibles. First one is in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23, where Peter, preaching a sermon on the day of Pentecost, says, quote, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. End quote. That's very clear. Jesus, who, by the way, is a human being through whom God did miracles, was delivered over to the Jews by God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. Very clear that Jesus was in God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. Very clearly stated there within a sermon in the book of Acts. We can also see back in 1 Peter chapter 1, now in verse 20, where it talks about Christ. This passage says, quote, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. End quote. 
That's very clear. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, meaning he was known in God's mind and plans and purposes before the entire world was even created. So we could even argue theologically that before the Genesis creation took effect, God had in his plans Jesus Christ. We can see a similar thing in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, which says, quote, All who dwell on the earth will worship him. This, by the way, is the beast. Everyone whose name is not written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. End quote. Notice there we have the lamb who has been slain. Literally, he has been slaughtered from the foundation of the world. Now, was Jesus literally slaughtered and killed prior to the foundation of the world? Certainly not. That doesn't make any sense. But it makes sense that prior to the foundation of the world, that the lamb was in God's mind and plans and purposes, namely that the lamb would be slaughtered, killed, slain, and sacrificed. So we're seeing there three places, Acts 2, 22 through 23, 1 Peter 1, 20, and Revelation 13, 8, where very clearly the New Testament speaks of Jesus Christ being within God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. Notice again, when the New Testament wants to describe Jesus Christ, it picks the option of preexistence, that is, within God's mind, plans, and purposes, rather than literally and tangibly pre-existing alongside God up there in heaven. Let's move along to our fourth point, which is a little bit more complicated, but it's something that I think that educated Christians need to wrestle with within the Bible, which is the subject of pre-existent wisdom. Pre-existent wisdom. Now, wisdom within the Old Testament is often a personification of God's wise interaction with the world and with his creation. And oftentimes, God actually creates things through the medium of his wisdom, which means that God creates things wisely and in order. Let's look at this passage in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, where it says, The Lord, in wisdom, founded the earth. In understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. So they were saying that God created and founded the earth, established the heavens, and broke up the deeps and allowed the skies to drip with dew. But he did this through the vehicle of his wisdom. So God is the creator, but the agent of this creation is God's wisdom. Okay, But wisdom here is not a literal person alongside God in heaven. Notice the parallelism. God's wisdom is his understanding and his knowledge. This is why we understand wisdom within this passage of Proverbs and throughout the book of Proverbs as the personification of God's wise interaction with the world. Let me state again, just to be clear, wisdom in the book of Proverbs is not an actual female person up there in heaven alongside God. No, this is poetry. This is metaphor. This is a personification. We can see a similar thing in another poetic book, the book of Psalms. Look at Psalm 104 in verse 22, where the psalmist praises God and says, O Lord, how many are your works? With wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. We see the same language that we saw there in Proverbs 3.19, that the Lord, Yahweh, made all of his works, made all of his deeds with wisdom and in wisdom. 
God is the creator, but wisdom is the personified agent through which God is making all of these things. And these are just poetic ways, again, of saying that God has ordered his creation with wisdom. It is a wise creation. It is a good creation, just like we see in Genesis chapter 1. Now, in the New Testament, what we actually start to see is that these New Testament writers have already determined that Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord, the Messiah, the Son of God, is the current place where God's wisdom can be found. Formally, you might get the impression by reading the Hebrew Bible, by reading the Old Testament, that God's wisdom can be found within the law, within the Torah. But the New Testament Christians seem to indicate that wisdom can now be found in Jesus Christ and sometimes even speak of Jesus Christ in terms that might be considered the embodiment of God's personified wisdom. I'm going to show you a passage to where Paul just casually has this understanding of wisdom. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-4, through 4, which says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. That's strange here. What does it mean that this rock that followed the Israelites in the wilderness, this spiritual rock, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10.4, was Christ? What does that mean? Well, two verses later in 1 Corinthians 10.6, Paul says, quote, Now these things happened as types for us. End quote. They happened as types. The Greek word typos, types. Okay, The rock that followed them was Christ as a type. But what is interesting and what most interpreters fail to grasp is that prior to the writing of 1 Corinthians, we have in our possession three documents written by Jews to where they said that the rock that followed the Israelites in the wilderness was, guess what, Lady Wisdom. This personified, wise interaction with the, with the world. God is wisely interacting with the Israelites in the wilderness with his wisdom. And the rock that followed the Israelites was God's wisdom. We can see that in the book of Sirach, in the writings of Philo, and in the work called Wisdom of Solomon. All three of these predate 1 Corinthians. And so what we're seeing here is that Paul is writing in debate with these Jewish writers to where they were formally saying that the rock that followed the Israelites was wisdom. Paul is saying, yes, but that wisdom is now found and embodied in Jesus Christ, and thereby he can say in 1 Corinthians 10.4, almost casually, that the rock was Christ. But again, he says that this was a spiritual rock in chapter 10 and verse 4, and these things were types for us in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6. Paul here seems to have what scholars call a wisdom Christology, wisdom Christology, which says that Christ is now the embodiment and the focal point of God's wise interaction with the world. And for the careful reader, you can actually observe that wisdom Christology was held and taught within the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of John. Of course, we've seen in 1 Corinthians, but there are two other passages in 1 Corinthians where this can be noticed. It's also heavily noted in the book of Colossians and in the first chapter of Hebrews. 
So between Matthew, John, 1 Corinthians, Colossians, and Hebrews, those are major power players within the New Testament. And thereby, wisdom Christology is something that Christians need to really think about and consider because this is something that Christians were talking about and describing almost in a casual sense as if they expected the readers to understand what they were talking about. And lastly, we need to talk about the preexistent word. The preexistent word obviously begins within the first three verses of the Old Testament, the first three verses of the Hebrew Bible in Genesis, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. That's Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3, where God speaks creation into existence with his creative and powerful word. And you can continue to read throughout Genesis chapter 1, where this refrain repeats, and God said, and God said, and God said, over and over and over. God powerfully and creatively speaks creation into existence through the agency of his word. We can see this also in the book of Psalms, Psalm 33 and verse 6, which says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host." Again there, the word of the Lord is the agent through which the Lord, God, is creating the heavens and their host. And to not be confused, the parallelism of Psalm 33.6 has the word of the Lord set alongside with the breath of his mouth. We can see some highly poetic language in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11 regarding the word, where God speaks and says, So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. That again is Isaiah 55 and verse 11, where God speaks of his word almost as a separate thing from himself, but it comes forth from his mouth. It's not going to return without accomplishing what he desires, and it's going to do what God sent it to do. So God, even after creation, sends out his word to accomplish his desire, his will, his purpose. And this word is something that is closely aligned with God's mouth. And we're seeing there that within Psalm 33 and Isaiah 55, that this word is a personification of God's powerful and creative speech. And with that understanding, we can start to understand what in the world is going on in John chapter 1. Yes, the famous battleground of John chapter 1. And so we can see there in verse 1, in the beginning was the word. Well, that's clear because we saw in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth with his powerful and creative speech. So there's drawing on and deliberately drawing the readers to Genesis chapter 1 with John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God. And with that he word is just a way of describing the personification of God's word. Because in Greek, the Greek word for word is logos, and that is a masculine word. And thereby, if you're going to personify God's word, which is masculine, you would personify it as a male. So that's what John is doing in John chapter 1 and verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. It's not a preexistent person. It's not a preexistent Jesus. It's God's word that is being personified. And then in verse 3, all things came into being through him is exactly what we read in Psalm 33 and verse 6, where God created the heavens and their host with his word. 
That's not saying anything different than what we've already established within the Old Testament. And it's actually not anything different than what we saw in Proverbs 3.19, where God created the heavens and the earth with his wisdom and his understanding and with his knowledge. Notice that the word and wisdom and understanding and knowledge are not separate persons literally pre-existing alongside God up there in heaven. Rather, they are personifications either of God's wise interaction with the world, which is what Lady Wisdom is, or personification of God's creative and powerful speech, which is what the Word is. And so in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, the Word there is personified as a male, and ultimately in John chapter 1 and verse 14, that personified, creative and powerful utterance of God gets embodied in the human Jesus and the rest of John's gospel, Jesus goes around saying and speaking the very words of God as God's spokesman. So in conclusion, we have observed that, number one, when discussing preexistence, it is important to respect and note the difference between preexistence in God's mind, plan, and purposes and literal preexistence alongside God in heaven. Number two, the Bible speaks often of plans and purposes both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, as pre-existing in God's mind. And the casual manner in which many of these verses are written seems to indicate that the biblical authors expected their readers to already understand this as a basic point about how God operates within the world. Point number three, the New Testament repeatedly teaches that Jesus Christ pre-existed within God's plans and purposes. Point number four, the New Testament draws upon the concept of wisdom, which is the personification of God's wise interaction with his creation and often describes Jesus Christ as the current embodiment in hopes of pointing seekers of wisdom towards him. And lastly, point number five, we observe that in close parallelism with God's personified wisdom, God's creative and powerful word which was also highly active in God's creation, is now embodied in the human Jesus, according to John chapter 1. If you've enjoyed the Biblical Unitarian Podcast and you would like to support the work that it is doing, be sure to check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much again for listening to us at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and until next time, take care.